This podcast is part of the project No Master Territories Feminist Worldmaking and the Moving Image, a traveling exhibition and screening program dedicated to the histories of feminist nonfiction film and video, concentrating on the period of the 1970s to the 1990s. My name is Erica Balsam, and I'm one of the curators of this project together with Gila Peleg. No Master Territories came together through many encounters and conversations with film scholars, researchers, filmmakers, and artists working around the world. This series of four podcasts comes out of and extends some of these encounters. You're now about to hear Isabel Segui in conversation with Lorena Best, Mauricio Godoy, Sara Guerrero, and Patricia Oliart. Nowadays, we are so saturated of moving images that it is hard to imagine a time when some social groups had no representation whatsoever. In this program, we are going to address the cinematic participation of the women dwellers of the desertic slums that surround Lima, the capital city of Peru, during the 80s and 90s. In these films and videos, the image and voices of groups of organized indigenous and Afro-descendant working-class women were mediated by allied filmmakers and videomakers who often were white middle-class women. At the beginning, the filmmakers just wanted to make marginalized people visible and help foster the agendas of organized groups that were reclaiming basic rights and services. However, these middle-class filmmakers were also women oppressed by a very patriarchal society, who soon discovered they could learn from the emancipatory practices of the Islam dwellers. The results of these popular communication processes were non-fiction films and videos in different formats, often funded by Western NGOs. Their principal characteristics, such as the fact of being non-fiction or short length and made using 16mm film or video, uh, make it difficult for these works to enter any canon or even to be seriously considered by Peruvian film scholarship and criticism. However, they are crucial to the construction of alternative canons and feminist genealogies of the moving image in Peru. And that is why we are considering them today. Let us start our program by contextualizing their production. During the second half of the 20th century, masses of indigenous migrants took over Lima. They were called invasors, invasores, by the criollo white population of the city. And interestingly, they too proudly defined their land-grabbing practices as invasions. The lands uh, they were taking over range from dumpsters to the desert. These areas had no services, no water, no power, no sewage, and no public transport arrived to most of them. The inhabitants of these new towns had to fight for every service, for every right, for the very idea that they were also citizens of the Peruvian state and neighbors of the city of Lima. It took decades for the new towns to become actual towns, and today many of them are still marginal areas of the city. From the 60s onward, leftist organizations and the Catholic Church supported the inhabitants of the shanty towns in their struggles, and from the 70s, progressive filmmakers started working in the dissemination and production of films with the dwellers of the slums. To situate this complex scenario, I have invited Dr. Patricia Oliart, who is a senior lecturer of Latin American Studies at Newcastle University. 
In recent years, she has been investigating cultural activism in Latin America, focusing on critical discourses and how they address forms of inequality such as anti-racism, indigenous rights, feminism, or anti-capitalism. Welcome, Patricia. It is an honor and a pleasure having you here today. Thank you, Isabel. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, well, in this podcast, uh, we look at uh, films focusing on the organizations of women settlers uh, active in Lima's shanty towns. We have invited you today not only because you're an expert, but also because you have first-hand experience working as a militant in these new settlements or Pueblos Jóvenes at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, and I hope you can tell us a little bit more of that later. But for starters, I, I would like to start framing uh, this topic, because I suppose that many of the listeners are unaware of the history of the capital of Peru in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, so I would like to start by asking you how, how see if you could explain broadly which demographic and urban changes occurred in the city of Lima in this period that would transform its face forever? Yeah, sure. Um, there is a very important shift um, in the 1940s in Peru. It is a moment of economic bonanza and growth of the state. Um, we are talking about uh, World War II, Uh, the war with Korea, where uh, Peru supplies minerals uh, for the arm industry. And so um, we have uh, a very fresh, uh, big source of income that is, is used um, by the state to, to grow. So a lot of services grow, um, education, health, um, roads, but uh, in a centralized fashion. Uh, Lima started to, to capture all the wealth and development uh, of the country from the 1920s, more or less. And so all this growth is perceived in Lima and it starts attracting people from all over the country. So the first uh, migration uh, movements we have in the city of Lima were the shanty towns, where the films that you're showing um, take place, start uh, growing massively from uh, the beginning of the 1950s. And uh, then in the 70s, there is another um, moment of expansion Um, that hasn't stopped <laughs> uh, because now the new um, uh, settlements, informal settlements that, that we have um, are still happening, but they are not that much migrants from other places in the country, but second or third generation um, migrants uh, from the original settlements. And an, another characteristic of Lima uh, related to this process is that even though Lima started attracting this massive immigration from the interior of the country, actually shifting the demographics from, let's say, 60-40 rural-urban division of the population, it is uh, now almost 80% urban and 20% rural. So all this happened in the last uh, 60 years, we could say. Um, but the thing is that in spite of this um, 
arrivals into the city, the governing elites never really prepared for this shift. And so a lot of the growth in Lima has been informal, meaning that people took in their hands uh, their settlement, the places, the, the way in which they build their houses, the um, internal design of all these areas. So Lima uh, is a very chaotic uh, city um, with a lot of agency from these migrants and little interest from the elites. So this has uh, meant that for every service Uh, that these people have to uh, get uh, for their settlements, there has been a lot of struggle and necessary organization. How, how uh, the different leftist organizations insert themselves, for instance, in the Pueblos Jóvenes that we're analyzing in these films in the shanty towns, and specifically, which roles did feminist organizations like Flora Tristan and Manuela Ramos have? Uh, okay. Um, well, um, we can talk about the the left um, in in Peru, uh, talking about socialists, anarchists, and um, uh, kind of left wing um, populism that emerged uh, in the 1920s when the working classes begin to act politically, to enter in the political arena. And in those uh, years, the understanding of the political struggle was very much framed in the context of capitalist or anti-capitalist uh, struggles um, or um, anti-imperialism because the uh, rejection to the um, uh, United States interventions in Latin America was quite strong. And so um, even though uh, political struggles and political organizations could have um, a, a place-based um, um, organizations, this was not that relevant in the, in the political discourse of, of the left. This changes a lot um, in the 1960s and 70s when you start to see, for example, that these settlements of migrants uh, choose to live close to the most industrial areas, no? um, where they found... Uh, barren earth and they, they no land and they would just uh, in, in places with barren land where they would just come and um, literally squat, <laughs> uh, invade, you know, and they call themselves uh, uh, invasores and they call themselves invasion to the places where they got because it was, they were taking over land, um, either uh, agricultural land or, uh, say, abandoned factories um, to live near the factories. And so it becomes very clear that there is a very um, strong uh, relationship between um, these neighborhoods and uh, factories. No? So the class-based discourse starts shifting Um, in the left in, from the 1970s uh, to a more territorial understanding of the city and of these big clusters of working class uh, people um, 
living in the city. And uh, also, um, we had um, a very progressive military regime um, uh, from 1968 to 1975. Um, so the, the dictatorship lasted until 79, but the progressive side of the military only uh, held power barely until um, 1975. It was the most progressive time, was between 68 and 72, and then internal struggles, and then uh, the right-wing uh, part of the army taking over. But uh, from 68 to 72, the government started uh, talking about um, these areas, uh, um, we could say marginal areas of the city, as um, uh, regionally, geographically described. No? The language of the government was the conos, uh, cono sur, cono norte, cono este, like cone, no? uh, surrounding the center of the city. And this language and recognition uh, was very important and was also um, taken by um, the people themselves, the, the dwellers of these places, and the left. No? Uh, so the left uh, started organizing uh, uh, their political parties on a territorial basis. So that changed a lot, and that attracted a lot more direct presence of the left um, in these barrios, no, in these uh, conos, uh, in in those years, and also with a more, uh, uh, say, with a broader political agenda. It was not just class, but it was also um, an extension of citizenship, the recognition of the place that these people had in Lima. How do feminists um, come to to the picture? Um, there is a trajectory of uh, women's organizations that comes uh, from the 1940s. I told you before how the elites didn't really um, assume or take any responsibility about the growth of the city, but the wives uh, of the presidents um, did. So they would go to the uh, shanty towns, the barriadas, as they were called in, in the 40s and 50s, to offer food, to give away um, kitchens, uh, to offer um, um, sanitation and things like that. But they would um, organize the women in the shanty towns to um, manage um, and, and be the main agency to obtain these um, benefits. No? And so that is the root uh, for the women's organizations in the shanty towns, very much in a clientelistic way. No um, attention in exchange for votes, um, and but it, it's interesting because it laid uh, out um, ways of organizing women uh, for political purposes. So um, what you have in the 1970s, with a very important growth of the left uh, in these um, in, in Lima and in, in, in the country, uh, but it, it was also something similar happening in Chile and uh, in, uh, in Brazil, um, is that the left uh, starts engaging with the struggle for services. 
for health, for education. And they resort to the women who have or who had already some expertise in dealing with this type of issues. No? And so uh, when feminism comes uh, in the country, you also have um, these um, uh, presence of militant, uh, f- female militants uh, engaging with women who were already interested in health, education, etc., etc. And so um, that's how women starts, uh, start approaching um, these organizations. And um, when feminist, or feminist organizations take shape, um it's just one thing leads to the to the other and other issues are um uh, uh discussed let's speak now about the dispute for the images for representation um one of the issues that interests us most in this exhibition no master territories is the mediation of the voice of uh, the subaltern groups by middle class intellectuals artists filmmakers And I know that you have researched Freirian educational processes and cultural activism in Latin America. How do you see the processes and practices of mediation of the discourse, the image and the corporeality of the struggles of these women settlers by progressive female filmmakers in the 80s and 90s? And I don't know, what reflection can you make on these strategic alliances in terms of power What are the advantages or disadvantages for subalternized women of being represented by allied filmmakers from a different social class? Um, well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very complex issue um, to make it very simple. <laughs> uh, it is a matter of resources in the first place. And then the outcome really depends on on how the filmmakers position themselves and uh, relate with the population because you have really a wide range of options. You you have the, the view from above, uh, not listening much to what is going on, no? uh, which is a possibility, but you have the camera <laughs> and the equipment to, to do that. But you have uh, also people who bring the resources um, to be used as a vehicle to channel their own voices. No? So um, a lot of it has to do, I think, with how the filmmakers see their role. No? And, and I think that you see a wide variety of, um, uh, of positions there and then you have um, in the area of representation a movement that goes against uh, these uh, what some people call you know the um, pornography of poverty and things like that to show the miseries etc to the other um, uh, way of dealing with this which is giving the people the resources to photograph themselves to document their lives etc no and and you see these from the 90s onwards as a much more common experience where you give the resource you give access to the resource um, uh, and and then see what people are able to 
to produce with that, no, some editing or whatever. So I think it it has a lot uh, more to. It, it's difficult to generalize. It has a lot um, more to do with the particular position of the filmmaker and how they understand their role. Thank you very much, Patricia. Yes, it is difficult to generalize. In Latin America has been an evolution of the ways in which the voice of the subaltern groups has been mediated by middle-class filmmakers. In Peru, since the 70s, some initiatives tried to channel the participation of popular organizations through audiovisual production. These are associations of popular communicators such as Calandria, IPAL, and TV Cultura, Filmmakers like Nora de Izque, Maria Barea, Maria Neide, Pilar Roca and Federico García, or film collectives like Chasky and Warmi, which is um, Warmi is the first women-led Peruvian film collective. Uh, the corpus of work in which we are focusing today consists of films created by women filmmakers with pobladoras, with women settlers. The first documentary focusing on the political practice of one of these women's organizations is Women of El Planeta, Mujeres del Planeta, directed by Maria Barea, released in 1981 and awarded in Leipzig Film Festival in 1982. Uh, this film, Women of El Planeta, focuses on the ladies' committee Aurora Vivar, uh, which was a women's organization of a shanty town on the left bank of the river Rimac a barrio built on top of the giant, uh, giant garbage hill called El Monton, which means the hip. Almost 10 years later, Barea made another film called Juntas Paramos la Olla that can be translated as making the soup together or solving our problems together. This film focuses on the impressive women-led women network of soup kitchens in metropolitan Lima responsible for feeding hundreds of thousands of people at the end of the 80s. Another documentary is uh, Pobladoras de Cerros de Arenales, which means dwellers of hills and sandbanks, made in 1986 by Nora de Izque. Marianne Eide, another filmmaker, also made a short docudrama alongside the members of the Glass of Milk program of the Comas district in North Lima. It is called Historia de Ana. The glass, like the history of Anna. The Glass of Milk program was an initiative of the municipality that provided milk for children and was led by the organized women of every district. Women took advantage of this organizational space to carry out uh, other fights, such as the confrontation of machismo and gender violence, as can be witnessed in this short film started by the members of the group who fictionalize and reenact the story of one of them. To reflect about this corpus of films, both in their form and content, I have invited three researchers and filmmakers that belong to a younger generation. They are Mauricio Godoy, um, Sara Lucia Guerrero, who are lecturers at Pont Pontificia Universidad Católica del Perú, and Lorena Best, who is a lecturer at uh, Universidad Peruana de Ciencias Aplicadas. Welcome today, Mauricio, Sara, and Lorena. Let's start with you, Lorena. Uh, what prompted middle-class filmmakers such as Maria Barea, Maria Neide, or Nora de Izque to work with the women of the slums? In addition to the historical context they have to live in, the social context, there's a search for life meanings. 
The filmmakers are asking themselves questions about life. There's also a class issue. They are women who had access to filmmaking in that period. They had a certain education and were immersed in a given cultural environment. This inequality still exists today. They bring a vision into these films. The need to sincerely connect with the lives of others in their city. Although it's conflictive, because in the films you can see there's a need to explain to a foreigner what poverty is like in Peru. That's why the voiceover is so heavy. There's a need to characterize that poverty, to describe the place of women. I feel that in these films there's a tension between the external demand to explain, which is also a self-demand, and a way of filming that's not only descriptive, but which shares, lives together and embraces. The filmmaker gives herself to the film subject. You feel that tension in the films, and I think it's a tension that mirrors their life experience. It's present in the life of many privileged women and men in Peru, a tension between what we think, how we see the excluded, and how we feel about those different forms of life. Moreover, these filmmaking practices are inserted in a particular context of foreign funding. There's an international agenda with women and women's organizations at its center. Many of these films are part of projects that originate in Europe, many from Germany. They come to South America and the Third World to film women's organizations and to show how women in the Third World deal with poverty, violence and hunger. So, there's also a whole theoretical discourse around funding from international agencies that are looking for this. One can't talk about this movement of filmmakers without considering the presence of the NGOs. And the other thing I feel is that there's an accumulation of hierarchies, because we're talking about this as cinema, yet if we ask other people if they think of it as cinema, they'll say that some of this is video, and most will see these films as documentaries without any cinematographic value. It's likely that they won't ascribe value to it. But a woman such as the Peruvian videomaker Paloma Valdeavellano, who worked on popular video projects and who also worked in cinema, she speaks passionately about video because it opens up the possibility of immediacy, cheapness and broad accessibility. What has happened a lot is how it has been decided what things do and do not enter history, the history of cinema. Take, for example, when I approached these filmmakers, when I approached Nora de Isque. 
it caught my attention that something that nobody talked about and which was not written about was precisely this relationship that she established with the people who participated in these productions with uh, Saturnino Uica, with the women of Guayabo, with some women in Iquitos. These were relationships that exceeded the visual narrative of the film texts. And the same thing happened with Maria Barria and the people she worked with. I wonder why this close relationship has not generated another visual story. I think we should delve into the relationships that were established during the production of these documentaries. Regarding the value issue in Peru, we have been obsessed. The ideal has been to generate fiction. In Peruvian cinema, fiction is valued much more than documentaries and other types of non-fiction. I would like us to talk a little bit now about what appears on screen. We see that uh, filmmakers use a variety of formats and produce heterogeneous aesthetic results. But there are some characteristics that unite these films beside the thematic ones. I would like to bring up something that has to do with considering this corpus of films as images. There is the domestic space, which is a space of care. I think that care crosses all these films in one way or another, whether it is caring for children or caring for the community, which is something that drives popular mobilization. And there is also the representation of territory, the atmosphere and the use of images of the sandbank the ever-present desert that surrounds the city of Lima, on top of which these shanty towns are built. You see public space, but the streets are full of disorder. You see precariousness. This is something common to all the films, how public life intermingles with domestic life. So the contrast between the women's lives in domestic space in comparison to this more hostile context of the dirty streets and the desert offers us an impression of the women's lived experience. They are immersed in this space amid this chaos in a place where it is probably too hot in the summer and where the water likely does not arrive. In these contexts, they continue to fight for the community and families. I feel that the fact that most of these productions are linked to NGOs already sets a certain standard. Those of us who have done films commissioned by NGOs know the limitations. The institution must approve the script. Although I may go and record certain testimonies, then I have to write the voiceover, give them the material, and they have to approve it. 
If they don't like it, they will make me film again or change things. This creates limitations, which is why these films feature voiceovers, certain types of interviews or dramatizations that the NGOs like, or the use of archives. Producing with NGOs means limitations when creating. And regarding the subalternized women on screen, they do not have the means of filmic production, nor do they have the cultural and technological capital that allow them to make films. They do not film, they do not edit images, do not fund, do not make final decisions. We could say that in principle, they would not have any power. However, they combine the feeling that they are not easily manipulated. It is as, it is as if they had their own resources of self-representation to which they do not renounce. Many of these films stand as sources for the research of women's grassroots movements. And these uh, Latin American popular movements um, were schools of rhetoric. These women learn to speak in public, and this is reflected in the films. Through their performances, uh, they take over the enunciating space in a way that is not going to be easily editable at will. In the final results, the women of the popular organizations emerge with a very strong voice that is not co-optable. Why do you think is this due to? Do you think it is because their voice and image are mediated by allied filmmakers? Or is it something that stems from their own way of uh, self-representing themselves, of performing publicly? All these films are political testimonies. All these women are doing grassroots politics all the time. They talk about popular organizing and solidarity. And that's an option for survival, but also for transforming their environment. Their environment is very hostile and precarious. They organize themselves to survive and to transform it. There is an awareness of inequality. There's an awareness of class and of origin. They are migrants and the daughters of migrants. They were probably not born in Lima, but they're compelled not only to build Lima like their parents, but also to take ownership, to appropriate Lima. To be citizens, to build the foundations of the city, and to do politics. And besides, female filmmakers are their allies. Middle-class feminists were organizing largely because women from the popular classes were organizing too. 
There are many things to explore in this parallel organization in the case of Peru. The women of the popular classes are totally aware of their social position, aware of the camera, of what they say, of how they are filmed and of whoever films them. This film practice is something totally political and it has to do with their political objectives. The political objectives of these films, the agenda of the movement of the women of the slums, is the struggle for social justice and basic rights. They confront racism, classism, sexism in general, but also within the left-wing and neighborhood organizations. To what extent are still these issues unresolved in Peruvian society? Everything you've mentioned continues to be on the agenda. Of the women's movement, of grassroots movements, of popular organizing. The neoliberal system has brought consumerism, but inequality and social injustice persist. The precariousness of life persists. And one of the hardest things to break is sexism and machismo. These women were an avant-garde. Their political articulations and self-managed forms of organization would be of use today. In fact, the ollas comunes, the soup kitchens, were reactivated during the pandemic. It seems to me, as a foreigner, that uh, not enough importance or historical visibility is given to this movement, especially when their practices are very relevant to the issues that feminisms are considering today. That is why I would find it interesting to bring these films back to present-day audiences. First, for not reinventing the wheel in each generation, and also to make Peruvian society see that in its history there's a continuum of female struggle that has not stopped since the 60s, although it was truncated by the internal armed conflict, uh, which was a, was a um, bloody war between the Peruvian state and the Shining Path, a Maoist guerrilla group, that resulted in almost 70,000 deaths. This uh, armed conflict uh, started in 1980 and ended in 2000. And in 1982, one of the most charismatic leaders of the movement of women of the slums, Maria Elena Moyano, was assassinated by the Shining Path for opposing their attempts to manipulate the grassroots movements and for opposing the use of violence. I think it is interesting that precisely the bulk of productions we are discussing was made in the 1980s. In the 1990s, we see that The Shining Path and 
armed conflict, had already entered the daily life of the city and the shanty towns. In the 80s, there was a massive presence of women's movements in the public sphere. There was a need to represent the political and social reality of the country, a need to talk and make visible certain issues. But in the 90s, the internal armed conflict began to diminish that. When we see the films of the 90s, they focus on the charismatic neighborhood leader Maria Elena Moyano, her importance and her murder by the Shining Path. In the 1990s also comes the Fujimori regime's repression of social movements and everything they represent. The Fujimori regime manipulated the armed conflict and accused anyone on the left of being a terrorist. And that affected and damaged cultural production in the following decades. We still live with the consequences of that calculated misrepresentation of anyone with progressive ideas, including filmmakers. Yes, that is another story that is beyond the scope of this program and to which we could dedicate another entire program or several. But there is no more time. Uh, I would like to thank you, Sara, Lorena and Mauricio for your participation and finish this podcast in which we have tried to illuminate, albeit briefly, a part of Peruvian audiovisual history that was crucial as an example of the emancipatory capacity of cinematographic processes led by women. Thanks and hasta la próxima. <laughs>